I'm a great believer that people buy, they're not sold. Welcome, closers. Today, we have another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast coming at you. This is season three on profit. I'm your host, Jordan Wayla, and every week I interview world class property management entrepreneurs and industry experts who share actionable insights to help you grow your property management empire. Whether you manage 100 units or 1,000, this broadcast is designed to help you see the big picture and give you the tools and tactics that you need to get to the next level. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Today, I'm talking with Andy Moore, the CEO of Gulf Coast Property Management, which has served thousands of Florida owners since 2003. Andy is a longtime client, friend, and consummate hustler. And in today's episode, you're going to learn about Andy's unique approach to running a profitable business and how this strategy helps Gulf Coast get ahead and how you can use some of these ideas to improve your own property management business. Welcome to the show, Andy. Hi, Jordan. How are you doing? Doing great. Hey, it's uh, fun to have you on. Known each other for um, a long time, and you've kind of been on my list. And it's taken me a while to to get you on the show, but I'm finally glad to actually have you here. There's a lot that I want to cover, so I just want to kind of dive into it. I want people to understand the flavor of business, where are you at, what's the size and scope of the business, what kind of properties do you manage. Catch us up to speed. I uh, started my business originally in 2003. Kind of as a, a property maintenance company, serving owners who owned properties from out of state or overseas. And um, we remained that way for a couple of years. I was cutting grass and cleaning pools, really dialing in on the vacation rental uh, market. We then took the maintenance and expanded it into renting vacation rentals and the actual annual rental side of the business. The uh, what we talk about in Napum wasn't really on my radar until. 2009, there was lots of opportunities uh, bouncing around regarding foreclosures, short sales, uh, people being displaced. So we really got into the annual rental market in 2009. Yeah, we went for it. Changed the direction of the company in terms of recognizing the, the income that the annual rentals can bring in terms of recurring revenue. Uh, it's a steady business. Uh, we're serving a need and we, we expanded our, expanded our portfolio and we're doing that steadily now, uh, since 2009, right through to 2018. And how many staff do you have? Uh, staff on board, we have 20 full time staff. My longest employee, my director of operations, she's been with me now for 12 years and, uh, with a sliding scale, uh, as, as we've grown. So 20 staff, do you have any VAs in the mix? Uh, we don't. It's something we're looking at. It's just I haven't found a way yet to uh, utilize them. And we're always finding things for uh, for people to do here. So it's something that is on our radar, but we really need to, to figure out how best to utilize uh, the VAs. All right. And how many doors are you guys managing right now? Uh, between our vacation rental and annual rental portfolio, we're, we're just a shy over 650. And what's the breakout? What percentage of those are vacation rental? Uh, about a sixth now. It was a little bit more heavier on the annual rentals, six sevenths. Now we've caught up a little bit with the vacation rentals uh, and we're back up to a sixth vacation rentals and uh, the remainder being annual rentals. All right. So this is really interesting to me. So you start off with a maintenance heavy focus and then you move on to vacation rentals and then you get to the single family rentals. So you have a pretty well-versed perspective having done it. The way that the conversation usually goes either about maintenance or vacation rentals is from the perspective of somebody that either hasn't done it or dabbled in it or just kind of sort of thought about it, but in many ways it represents a distraction and there's just a lot of uncertainty. You've done all three, not in part, but in full measure. So I'd love to kind of hear right out of the gate your perspective specifically on vacation rentals. Given that you've made annual rentals, as you put it, your primary focus, how do you think about the opportunity and the pros and cons with vacation rentals by comparison? 
I'm surprised there's not a lot of crossover or more crossover than what we see in organizations like NAPON. You and I have spoken at great length, and I've, I've tried to get you over to that side, uh, but uh, you've been reluctant to date. <laughs> Thanks for pointing that out, Andy. <laughs> I do think there's huge opportunities if, if the company is set up in, in a certain way. I don't think it works on a portfolio basis, the way vacation rentals have gone, but for companies who are in the right area and who are set up in a departmental fashion, I do think opportunities are there. And I think those opportunities are only growing now. Now, why is departmental versus portfolio? Why is that kind of a bright line for you with specifically with vacation rental? There is more of a clear definition between uh, the sales and reservations uh, rather than the leasing. The reservations is constant. It's every day. It's every week. Uh, You really need a sales and leasing arm to it. There's more moving parts in terms of operations. So you need a dedicated operations department who perform the functions of the the customer facing, whether that be a guest or whether that be an owner. And what do you see for the potential of the margins of vacation rental versus annual? The margins in vacation rentals eclipse those that are in the annual rentals. The reason we got into the annual rentals is it was it's feast of famine. And we live in an area where, in, in Florida on the Gulf Coast, where we are very busy from December through April in terms of our occupancy in vacation rentals. And historically, after April, a lot of these seasonal vacation rental properties would lie dormant. The advantage of annual rentals is it's, it's every single month. Your summer is likely your busiest period. So your leasing agents are busy in that period. And there's less of the, uh, the less of the ups and downs of, uh, of revenue. So it allows you to forecast the annual rentals allowed us to forecast and plan and really strategize about where we wanted the company to go. Whereas vacation rentals, the rewards are there, but there is risk also. So because you already have the year-round labor on the annual side, it makes it easier for you to kind of handle that vacation rental side in the down season for uh, for the annual. Yeah, correct. Why I think the vacation rental industry is good to be in, especially now, is these big tour operate the, the OTAs, the online travel agents, Airbnb, HomeAway, VRBO, Booking.com, they're big in the space and they've exploded the vacation rental industry and it's put it on the forefront of uh, the public's mind. Whereas previously, we were dealing with legacy guests who had an expectation of a rental property of maybe two to $3,000 a month. And when we've tried to increase our rates, there's just been pushback because of this historic perception. What these OTAs have done is bring a whole new sector to the market, Uh, new customers, it's a blue ocean, and they haven't got this legacy uh, opinion about pricing. They go in comparing it to hotels. And when we start talking to people about $200, $300, $400 a night for a property, they're not sidetracked from the historic uh, price point, they're comparing to hotels. They see a three-bedroom, three-bathroom pool home uh, for 400 bucks a night. You can't get that in a hotel, so they think it's great value, and we see very little pushback on price, and that just put, pushes up our yield for our profits and those of our, our owners, our customers. Interesting. What's one piece of advice that you would give somebody that's in a market where vacation rentals are viable? They may be considering it, but they already have a book of business in annual traditional single family. What's one piece of advice you would have somebody considering getting into the vacation rental side? There's a few things I would do. I'd recommend joining an organization, the similar organization to NARPON, but it's VRNA, which is the vacation rentals uh, equivalent and approach some of your property owners who, as, as we see in the annual rental business at the moment, we are reaching a point where these accidental landlords have 
are exiting the market or they're, they are liquidating for various reasons. Not all of them uh, need the capital or what, what are they, if you ask the question, what are they going to do with the capital? If the property is suitable for a vacation rental, it might be a way to, uh, to transfer your property owner who is perhaps sick and tired of the low margins in a annual rental. They may be enticed into the vacation rental world and then it will also allow them to use the property as a vacation rental. Ah, I'm feeling you. Okay, got it. So this could be a churn combatter. The the pitch is a higher management fee, more revenue, and usage of the property. Ah, interesting. Okay. So let's move on to talking about some of the other components. Maintenance was the other one that we touched on. You have a lot of experience with maintenance. Walk me through your basic view on the opportunity that maintenance represents. It's kind of a controversial topic, at least from the perspective of you got a lot of people that say you can't make money on maintenance. You got a smaller subset of people that say you can't make money on property management without maintenance. Where do you fit in that conversation? What's your kind of general uh, view of the opportunity that maintenance represents? Yeah, I'm a big believer in maintenance throughout the property management industry. But again, pivoting back to vacation rentals, it is impossible to run a vacation rental company without internal maintenance. I do not know of another company who has vacation rentals that do not have their own internal maintenance. It's guest expectations are sky high and with due course because they're paying a lot of money to remain in the property. So a AC going out in the on a Saturday evening may not be an emergency for a annual rental tenant, but it certainly is for a vacation rental. So you have to have the on-demand staff because you're trying to cram in someone's week-long or yeah, two-week-long vacation uh, and their expectations are, are, are similar to those of a hotel where things are going to be get fixed. So I couldn't run a vacation rental management company without maintenance. But even in isolation, performing maintenance duties is part of a property management organization. And and I understand that people believe you can't make money out of maintenance. There's geographic challenges. There is uniformity of parts uh, challenges. I, I get all of that. But what we used to do, and we, we weren't always successful uh, on our maintenance, because what we used to do was try and compete with the handyman price. And if you're doing that, you will definitely lose money. We raised our prices significantly. We understand what now our cost of operation is. Uh, we understand the profit element of it. So we've raised our prices considerably. And then it's a value prop to the property owner in terms of assuring them that the value isn't necessarily in the dollar amount. It can be found in in lots of other ways. Okay. So the immediate pushback here is the fiduciary responsibility, right? Like you're saying you're charging more money, but how is that in the best interest of your owners? Do you require your owners to use the in-house maintenance staff or do you allow them to, to bid it out? In our vacation rental management we do require they use our maintenance staff just because the customer face elements of it is is gulf coast it's not the property owner and there are less fiduciary responsibilities uh, because we're we're licensed under uh, a different statute we don't have that pushback now on the annual rental side I, I understand the fiduciary responsibilities but i think you can justify that by highlighting the intangibles and quoting maintenance issues, the friction that's caused with delays, the constant missed appointments by vendors, the time spent in, on turns. If you're looking at an annual rental property manager who doesn't have a maintenance department versus one that does, we're actually in control of that turn. We can say with confidence that we will we begin advertising uh, when a non-renewing renewing tenant is not in the property. Therefore, we could have a same-day turn or the uh, a very short turn between uh, tenants. I think you can only do that with internal maintenance because they can work overtime. We're in control of the situation. We're not going to be let down by a flooring guy. We're not going to be let down by uh, the painter not showing up. 
So we can justify it to our owners that way in terms of we don't think you are paying more. If Joe down the road, your handyman, is able to uh, to do this for 50 bucks, look at the opportunity that we have in renting the property quickly. Uh, so don't necessarily focus on the, the dollar amount of the, the turn. Look about the opportunity in rent that our maintenance program provides. Mm-hmm. So what's interesting is the disposition of thinking that somehow you making money on maintenance might represent some kind of a conflict of interest that is different than the management company making money in any other way, right? Because there's various fees that are already collected with any of those fees you could ask. Well, is that in the best interest of the owner? Is it is it in the best interest of the owner for you to be profitable, Andy? You know, maybe you should just r- run your business into the ground and operate on, on low profit. So that's the part of the, to the extent that people are trying to make a maybe a, a quasi-moral argument out of it. I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious what does violate a fiduciary responsibility. Things like any kind of inappropriate non-disclosure or misrepresenting what's actually going on in the business, et cetera. But to the extent that you're being transparent, at the end of the day, it's a free market economy and situation where people are making a choice to either pay more or less as long as they go in informed. So I hear where you're, where you're coming from. What I find is that a recurring theme with a lot of different ways to make money in this business is that the way that you approach it and the way that you explain things to your owners is the difference between being able to command meaningful fees that allow you to have margin versus not. So what I find a recurring conversation is around, is it more worthwhile to lean into whatever you may have to do in order to charge the money you need to charge to run a profitable business? Or are you better off just seeding that fight and finding a way to live off of less? Macro, in my mind, that's kind of what it comes down to. Your thoughts? I'm a great believer in getting in front of the problem and demonstrating your worth my father used to say all the time that uh, people know the price of everything, but the value of nothing. Never in property management, never a true word has been said. We can, with data that we have available, we can demonstrate to uh, property owners that maybe expenses are high, are higher, but your net revenue is greater. We can show time and time again how that's the case. We haven't done a great job in the past of communicating, and that's one of the things we need to improve on, is over-communicating our successes. I was of the opinion that you, if you were doing a good job for someone, uh, that was enough. They would recognize that. But mm-hmm. I have began to learn that it's not enough, and you need to over-communicate your successes and demonstrate on a on a regular basis, whatever that regularity may be, but demonstrate on a regular basis and communicate what you're doing for that property owner. Oh, that is so good. I've heard it said that unacknowledged value is unrealized value. It's not enough, exactly what you said, it's not enough to know in your heart of hearts that you're doing right by the customer. That may be enough to allow you to sleep at night, but that's not necessarily enough to run a business that's growing or that's profitable. And taking the opportunity to remind the customer of what you've done for them lately to allow them to have the satisfaction of appreciating and giving you full credit for what you've done, absolutely critical. Last thing on maintenance, any words of advice around staffing? Because that does seem to be one of the real pain points. If you think about the barriers of what prevents people from getting into maintenance, given that it can represent additional revenue, staffing is like at the top of the list. I can't find good people. There's a lot of turnover. Managing them is a pain, et cetera. It's interesting that some of that kind of undertones there has like a blue collar uh, subtext when you hear people go off about this, but what's your view on what's required uh, to find the right people that will actually stick around and do maintenance well on the tech side of things? Yeah, it is difficult. And the the area that I live in, we are, we are short-staffed of skilled trade. It is boomtown here and all the builders uh, are mopping up quality staff. So I'm, I'm, not say, I'm not saying it's easy at all. It's just once you have them, you have to treat those employees like gold. Now, we hire uh, through the apartment industry. We found that that's a really good 
fit for us in terms of our maintenance staff rather than uh, employing uh, the handyman type it's go directly to the apartments we've been we offer more we're, we're involved in organizations we're, we're involved in the uh, the apartment association locally we know when there's turnover of staff we know when there's availability we know what the going rate is that's how we find our staff. Oh. interestingly i was at the national apartment association their annual convention last year in atlanta and what they do for their maintenance their maintenance stuff that is amazing each region has qualifiers and the final is in uh, at the national convention and what this comprises of is it's small maintenance tasks they have timed maintenance tasks where they have it's within it's within the convention but there are bleachers 10 stations, like changing locks, switching out fans, anything you can think about regarding what a maintenance uh, a turn guy would be doing. Each station is sponsored by uh, like some of the big box stores like Home Depot, HD Supply, Lowe's. And the recognition these yeah, maintenance right. guys get is incredible. And you know the, the first prize is $25,000. They've done a really good job of recognizing that uh, the maintenance staff, they do feel, they do feel isolated and they do feel that they're out in the field and, you know, they're responsible for the success or failure of the company, but they're not recognized internally. So what we try to do is we recognize them. We buy them breakfast. We, we, we had a, an appreciation for, for our maintenance guys recently where they all got bought new, uh, lunch boxes, coolers. They don't feel as isolated and ostracized. And they do rec- we do recognize uh, that they are a very important part of our business. Wow, I love it, man. The inclusion, the recognition, making it making them a part of the the culture makes a ton of sense. I'm curious, what's your rule of thumb in terms of how many doors a maintenance tech should be able to service and how many doors a maintenance coordinator should be able to manage? I think that depends on the structure of your company. What we see, in terms of work orders, if we concentrate on reactive work orders for a maintenance tech, our goal our goal is eight work orders a day of varying complexity. So that's what that's the goal that our our maintenance techs are set. In terms of the maintenance coordinator, we have one maintenance coordinator, uh, and she's managing the internal the internal maintenance issues. We use a third-party vendor uh, for the incoming calls. If the owner has specific maintenance instructions, then they will be directed then to the property manager, and the property manager will organize those. Uh, whereas if it's going to be an internal uh, maintenance issue, then our maintenance coordinator handles that. So with our properties, we're okay with one maintenance coordinator, I don't know how long that will remain uh, because she is getting close to being maxed out. And what software is that person using to push work orders around? We use Appfolio as our, our management software. We use Microsoft Teams for our internal communication and recording of work orders. And then once that our workflow, it then will go to our accounting department to uh, to process and then it goes to the actual property manager uh, for for their portfolio to inform the owner to process and to approve what are the limits of what your maintenance department specifically what what won't you guys do will you so when it comes to what we're legally allowed to do is we are legally allowed to fix pre-existing pre-existing repairs or issues so if there's a block sink, if we have to take some piping from uh, underneath a counter, we'll do those that type of plumbing. We will reset toilets. We will put in a hot water tank if, if it's not gas. We're allowed to do those uh, within the auspices of handyman work. What we take a, a decision to do, we don't do appliances at the moment. Uh, appliances, we used to fix washing machines, dryers, uh, fridges, 
they've become so complicated, the control panels, it's taken it out of our reach. Looking at our maintenance uh, schedule, it there is a big part of what we do. So the next hire that we make may well be a appliance guy because depending on our depends on our growth, I think we could pretty much justify a full-time appliance guy uh, pretty soon. Interesting. So you're saying you're not doing it currently because it requires a specialized skill set. Have you done any analysis of the general profitability of any categories or types of maintenance tasks, bigger, smaller jobs, etc.? How do you think about that? Yeah, we have. I mean, in full disclosure, we ran our maintenance uh, department at a loss uh, from about 2012 to 2015, 16, because we were trying to be everything to everyone. And the, the difficulty with single family over the multifamily is there's no commonality of parts. Uh, you've got geographic challenges. And when you're keeping vans on the road, you have to maximize their uh, productivity. And we were down, once we started analyzing, we were down to a productivity of about 45% a day. And it was killing us. But we weren't really analyzing the data. It was only after we analyzed the data that we could actually see where our frailties were. When you're bootstrapping a business, cash is king. Cash was coming in. And yep. it all looked rosy. But right. once you take a step back and look actually where you're, the, the sectors you're making money, the sectors you're losing money, it was frightening. So we actually put a halt to our maintenance, took a breather and reassessed. We then increased our prices pretty much overnight, which was a brave thing to do. But we, we had to justify to our owners of, of why we were doing this. And then we just said, look at the work we can do. Let's count our callbacks, historic callbacks, and anything that we were getting callbacks on, we would uh, we would say we're not doing that. So a lot of the time it was ACs and appliances. They were the main things that we would go to. We wouldn't be able to diagnose effectively. And then not being able to charge the owner for a non-diagnosis, we would then call in a wow. AC specialist. And that would just go down as lost revenue, lost opportunity. And we've just paid one of our maintenance guys uh, a couple of hours to go and fix something that he wasn't able to do, and then we weren't able to charge for it. So we put a halt to those kind of calls and have just slowly drip-fed what we can do. And our maintenance coordinator is very good, and she's very analytical. And then we've broken it down into segments so that once we get a diagnosis, we have a good idea of whether or not we're going to be able to solve that problem. I love it. So when you mentioned uh, the callbacks, that's like classic lean manufacturing, right? Reducing the amount of rework, lowering the average number of touches required to get a job done. Prior to that, you mentioned just an across the board increase of prices. Walk me through that, right? This is really juicy. Anytime we have the conversation about revenue optimization related to increasing profits, where the rubber really meets the road is not listing out that you know, 500 fees, right? We can all brainstorm around fees. It's getting over the fear of actually putting it in practice and wondering what's going to happen. So you pull the trigger. How did you craft the language in communicating to owners? Was your staff concerned? What was the fallout? Was there any pushback? Walk me through that. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, the staff were concerned. Uh, they they're the ones that feel the brunt of the uh, the frustration from property owners. Once we'd analyzed the, the data, we can't compete with an owner operator, a, a one man band who doesn't have to worry too much about workers' comp or insurance or uh, benefits. So their cost of operation is so low. And that's where I believe this 45 buck an hour, $50 an hour handyman rate comes from. And that's what we were competing with. Unbeknown to me at the time, our actual global cost of operation was 56 bucks an hour. So by sending a maintenance guy, just employing a maintenance guy, uh, regardless of their productivity, even if they're hitting 100% productivity, we were still losing money. So once we'd recognized that, uh, we 
set our rate on our cost of operation. So we know what we're looking to achieve profit-wise. We know what our cost of operation are. And we know what a reasonable, productive day looks like for a maintenance tech. And once we've, once we've assembled that number, we came up with the number we have to charge for maintenance issues. Now, we approached our owners with that and said, Mr. Owner, we've been operating a maintenance company at a loss. We're unable to do that any longer. Our new rates are going to be this. However, you're not required to use our maintenance services. We don't mandate that you use our maintenance services and you have a choice. What would you like to do? And the fallout of it was incredibly low. I think by getting in front of the problem, being honest, being transparent and explaining to our property owners the challenges we were being faced with, either they ignored the issue, uh, there was some apathy, uh, there wasn't that much engagement, or many people were, okay, we'll stick with your maintenance services. Did you lose any management contracts over it? We didn't lose any uh, management contracts over that. There is churn and there may be, I think I'd be naive if, if I, I said it might not have been a, it may have been a, a deciding factor or a tipping point for some people. Uh, but we didn't, we didn't see an uptick in our churn as a result of, of changing our ma- uh, maintenance fees. Got it. So nobody complained loudly and then immediately walked out the door. That's good to know. What was the, the increase? Was it 25%, 100%? How much was the relative increase? Uh, it was close to 90%. Wow. 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 That's inspiring, Andy. Yeah, it was, but it was a case of we couldn't do this any longer. It just meant we were going to be losing more and more money. And then a, vic- it, a victim of your own yeah, success. Absolutely. So we had to get in front of the problem. Uh, we did that and we were very fortunate that there, there wasn't any pushback or any, any real pushback at all. I'm digging this. So the benchmarking study that we did going inside of 50 plus companies books, this is one of those situations where the story talking to Andy Moore could have been, yeah, you know, maintenance, you just can't make any money there. You just got to eat it. You just got to take a giant loss and you got to make your money up on property management, right? That that was the story for a while. And that could have been the story that you held to in perpetuity, but you chose to take action. You chose to do the analysis. The approach of change was was cost plus, like what's your cost structure what kind of profit margin do you want to make? And then anchoring around that based on an assumption of utilization. What is your expectation? If you were at a bar at an ARPM event talking to some other owners that have a full-blown maintenance company, what would you kind of set as, as an expectation for what somebody that's doing this well should be looking to make in terms of uh, operating margin within the maintenance side of the business? We build into, into our model 10 to 15% non-operational, going to the hardware store, the productivity of, of our maintenance staff cannot be 100%. So with our cost of operation in maintenance compared to what we charge, we're looking at a 30% gross profit just on our, our maintenance. That's where we're, we're trying, that's where we're trying to reach. But once you build, once you build in the limited amount of callbacks that we have, and some free compensation to perhaps some uh, to a vacation rental guest that brings that number down for us to about seventeen percent is where is is where we've been at uh, now for the last year. Now we're trying to increase that and we're trying to increase our productivity. Geographic scale is going to help that so that having depth of properties within uh, within zip codes is going to cut down on our travel time, which is going to increase the, the productivity of each tech. Uh, there'll be less downturn. So we're, we're hoping to get then that push those numbers up to you know the mid-20s. What is the relationship between the quality of properties that you manage and your ability to make money on the maintenance side of things? Do you think that there's a, a direct relationship there? I do. It's not coming from any, any point of expertise or, or data in terms of uh, what I have in front of me. We, we have a lot of new build. In, in this area, bringing a new property on the maintenance required in that property is going to be it's going to be minimal. The older properties that that we have, that's where we see the bulk of our maintenance or work orders going towards. Kind of an inverse relationship. If you manage lower quality properties, it's going to have a negative impact on your ability to make money on the management side of 
the business. I think we can just kind of use that as an operating, a fair operating assumption, but there's more potential revenue to come in for, for maintenance. Interesting relationship there. Well, let's, let's move on from maintenance. We've spent a fair bit of time talking about that. Those are definitely some unique insights, guys. For those of you listening at home, it's worth just continuing to look at maintenance as one additional revenue center. It's, it's relevant because of how closely aligned it is with the business. But at the end of the day, we're just talking about another way to make money, another revenue center within the business that's directly aligned with service delivery. At the end of the day, whether or not you handle it in-house or if you're outsourcing, you're still doing it. You're, whoever shows up at that person's house and knocks on the door is representing your company one way or the other. I do want to talk a little bit about the sales side of the business. How do you handle sales as properties are churning? Are you capturing a meaningful number? How do you think about the sales piece of the business? We have been. Uh, we have been capturing with a lot of pocket listings, owners selling and then bringing new investors into the market and uh, handling the transaction in-house. We have been listing properties. Uh, my leasing agents, they're licensed, so they have been listing some properties which is has been it's been good for revenue no doubt it's a uh, closing the circle i guess in terms of a, uh, a life cycle for uh, real estate property management real estate whether or not we continue to do it it's unlikely as a revenue piece it's been significant but not critical and i do think that the bigger opportunity is going to be in property management as we move forward and not competing at all with the uh, traditional real estate agents, leveraging those relationships. If we do have the opportunity to have some pocket listings, yeah, we will We will certainly continue to do that. All right, let's talk about the other sales side of the business, i.e. owners. What is your approach to sales? I know we've talked about this in the past. There's kind of a hierarchy or a graduation of, of awareness in the sales process. It starts off with everybody just doing sales themselves and hustling and putting their best foot forward. And over time, more shape is formed to what's unique about your specific selling process, your pitch, and how you sell. So in a nutshell, Andy, how would you describe your approach to sales? I'm a great believer and always have been a a great believer that people buy, they're not sold. So the current message is going out that we should be a consultant and we should be a trusted advisor. And we're moving away from the the traditional car sales method of selling. So that's the way I've always tried to sell. And and I like selling. It's something that I personally enjoy. And I've been the the sales driver for the company uh, since it started. But then as we grow, bringing in uh, a BDM, uh, making sure that the we fund the the marketing and sales department to reach the revenue goals that we've set ourselves. So when you talk about funding, part of that obviously relates to training as well. What's your approach to training and and oversight with your BDM? So anyone involved in the sales capacity in my company, whether they be a leasing agent, a reservationist, uh, or the the BDM or marketing, uh, we put them through the the Sandler training program. Uh, it's, It's a good grounding. Uh, it, it gives them a uh, gives them a really nice insight into how we want to sell, and so once once they've accomplished that, then with regular meetings, regular sales meetings uh, within the office. I was listening to a pub, one of your podcasts recently, and you had mentioned something about the uh, the most successful companies are not necessarily the ones with the best product or service; it's the ones with the best marketing and sales. I absolutely believe in that it's you can you can have the greatest thing on earth but if you aren't able to convey its value it, it doesn't matter so really investing in our sales team whether that be the standard training as i mentioned going to uh, the pm growth summit i took last year i took three staff members uh to the pm growth summit to give them kind of an introduction into what this industry is about and how we want to present ourselves within this industry Absolute investment in that area of the business is is critical. It does help, but it's something that I particularly enjoy also. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I love the fact you invest. I love the fact that you're doing Sandler. At the end of the day, Sandler represents an intentional approach. It is one program. I can't say I'm that familiar with it. I definitely know of it. I know a number of people that have gotten good results from it. But it doesn't really matter what program you use. The point is that you're recognizing that for sales to be successful, it has to be operationalized, meaning it has to have equivalency with all the other aspects of the organization, whether that be leasing, maintenance, whatever it may be, the assumption that we make is that this is a job that has specific tasks that requires training, oversight, and management. And yet when we get to sales, a lot of times that metaphor breaks down and we think, man, we just need to find a guy with with the juice, right? The guy that can just do that dark art. He's got that charismatic, he or she has that charismatic disposition and they'll just kind of do it if you find the right person. But that breaks down very, very quickly, particularly once you commit to a comp structure that is not going to pay the person that has that amazing skill set of producing something from nothing. If you're not going to pay that kind of a person what they're worth and you're looking to pay more like 30, 40, 50, you're probably looking to hire an order taker and that's okay as long as you have inbound lead flow. So I love the fact that you're committed to intentional training. You mentioned having a sales meeting as well. That's the ongoing management oversight piece. What is the cadence of your meetings with your BDM? What do you discuss and how do you continue to know whether things are going wrong or right? And more importantly, how do you understand the why behind that result? A whole company, uh, you talk about cadence of meetings, a whole company, We've been using the EOS uh, traction structure now for for a couple of years and uh, departmentalized our sales and marketing. We meet every single week. We have scorecards. Uh, we have leads. Uh, so we measure measure our leads, measure our conversions, measure our did we lose the competition? How did we lose the competition? Why did we lose the competition? We have an ongoing nurturing program uh, that you know between. Uh, between four and a half and lead symbol uh, it's been just blown out really and we are now I think 18 months worth of uh, of content going out to uh, owners that ne- didn't necessarily bite straight away may have lost but cycling back to them all of the time and we're picking up a fair bit of business uh, from people who we haven't uh, didn't catch the first time around but we're catching on maybe the second or third time I have daily stand-up meetings with my BDM in terms of uh, where we're at, uh, keeping him on track. Uh, he's really bought into the vision of Gulf Coast. He's come through the ranks here. Uh, he he started as a pool guy, worked in reception, then worked in vacation rental sales. He then became a real estate agent, uh, and he's, he had a really good year in terms of uh, sales and leasing. And then uh, we had an opportunity, as I was transitioning out of the BDM role, uh, into the more uh, strategic uh, position, he's he's stepped in. He was sold on the vision, and he's he's going great guns. Awesome! I love the intentionality of what you're operating there. I love the fact that you're staying in touch and that you're continuing to aggressively manage that side of the business. You brought up EOS, so let's take things full circle there. EOS Entrepreneurs Operating System has gotten a fair bit of airtime over the last couple of years, specifically in our industry. We've kind of talked about it briefly in the past, but for those that are not familiar, can you just give a cursory overview of, of what exactly is EOS and why is it something that you have found worthwhile to implement? I fell into the property management business uh, the same way as a lot of people do. It wasn't so deliberate. I, I started a company because I owned a property and, and couldn't find a service provider and it led me to where I'm at now. And I think a lot of people in our industry are like that. And as a result of the our industry being so dominated by real estate companies or realtors or uh, real estate brokerages who have a, a PM arm to them, they run their businesses like uh, their independent contractors run their own book of business and portfolios. And I've always had an issue with that. I, I wanted to build something more than that kind of uh, real estate empire. I wanted, to, I wanted to build a company. I wanted to affect people's lives, give people a career path. 
I've always wondered why we look at property management differently to other industries. Because for my, to my mind, if you own a business or you run a business, those skills are transferable and those, those business principles exist in no matter what you do. There may be a difference between uh, manufacturing and, and the service industry, but if we use a service industry example like a, an air conditioning company or a roofing company, they will have a, a sales arm, they will have a operational arm, and then they will have a, an accounting and HR arm. And I was determined to, to find a way to get to that spot, and EOS has helped me get uh, there, so we now have real clarity in where the company is going. Uh, you are recognizing people's skill sets for what they are. Uh, and you're not putting a someone who is intentionally transactional and the life cycle of their their customers are very short. You're not putting them in charge of an, of an account where their constant communication with an owner, constant communication to a tenant uh, and managing expectations because that's not their skill set. Their skill set is uh, closing deals, and they're they're on, they're working on the on the, on the short wave, uh, not the long wave. For those that are kind of looking at EOS and just wondering, is this another fad? Is another I, another book that I could read, but I'm only going to implement a fraction of? Could you walk through some of the the structure or the disciplines that EOS talks about that are that are fairly concrete? We have a a vision for the company and. Uh, leadership team uh, will will sit down or we did sit down and we outline where we want to be and whether that be a 10-year, five-year, three-year, a one-year goal. So once that's established, then it's, it's, it's putting the meat onto that frame as in how are we going to get there? What core values do we have as a company? Uh, what core values do we have when we are looking at hiring people to fill the spaces that we have that is a long range overview of what do we want the company to look like what are it's going to be its goals its skills its attributes and then you bring that down to an annual meeting with your leadership team quarterly meetings with your leadership team then you have your uh, departmental weekly meetings uh, where there's clear accountabilities that are set. We have to do. We have scorecards. We have to dos. We solve issues uh, within each department. As a company, we meet quarterly. Uh, we use open book accounting. We show our staff where we're at. Uh, we show our staff uh, where we have made budget, where we haven't made budget, uh, what we can do better. There is, to use your word, cadence. There is a there is a pulse to what we do. I, I was in a meeting recently uh, that we weren't using traction and I just felt lost. There was no direction in the meeting. Uh, it was it was rudderless. It's made me appreciate even more uh, what the, the disciplines of uh, EOS can bring to an organization. In terms of actually getting the velocity to where it felt like it was working as intended how long what was the ramp up how long did it take before you felt like you really hit your stride with it obviously i mean i've listened to your podcast a hundred times now and and uh, everyone you bring on anyone who was listening the other day to matthew whitaker i echo his his sentiments in terms of what traction can bring the we, we were implementing a lot of these uh principles if I read a long time ago, a few years ago now, I read a book called uh, The Great Game of Business. It's a guy called Jack Stack. He turned a manufacturing company around and he did it by open book accounting, clear accountabilities, showing people the fruits of, the fruits of their labor, they, what the knock-on effect of their efforts meant. That opened my eyes initially and then I kind of followed that up with the e-myth and then into traction, and then looking at some of Ben White's books, The Building Blocks and uh, Connecting the Dots. All of those things, we were, we were doing all of those things, but we didn't have any real structure. I knew where I wanted to take the company, but I didn't have the, the tool in which to do it. And then what traction did, it gave me the, it gave me the, the tool and the fabric of how to, 
how to organize meetings, how to set goals, and how to deliver the message. So you already had some momentum. You already you, you weren't starting cold, right? Like to start cold would basically be a situation where you were the, the property manager, you're doing everything, you made one hire, you made two hires, you just where all the momentum that you had was purely just to get things done. There was already some level of thoughtfulness going on. And it sounds like EOS just kind of crystallized. Uh, it was the answer that, that you were looking for prior to that. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it is. It, uh, it really makes sense. And the content in the e-myth is just invaluable. And if someone's looking at starting, uh, starting any business, really, uh, the e-myth is just a, it, it's a fantastic resource. What Traction did and how we implemented it, the guy, Gino Whitman, who wrote Traction, he's come out with several books. But one of the books that he, uh, that he implemented is uh, What the Heck is EOS? It's explaining it from a employee's point of view. We bought all of our staff that book and we had them essentially write a, uh, a short essay on what the heck is EOS. And that's how we implemented it in terms of to, to the company. So that's how we introduced it. And that, that was, that was valuable. It, it gave people a clear indication of what EOS was rather than it just coming from uh, myself or the leadership team. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Love that. So, so that's all in, right? At the point that you're asking your staff to write an essay on a given topic, it's fair to say that you're all in. Well, no more time to talk about EOS, but it's definitely a topic of interest. I'm about halfway through the traction book that you mentioned. It's it's come up more and more. So it's definitely something I'm interested in looking at. But whatever the structure is, whether it's that, whether it's scaling up by Vern Harnish, whatever the methodology is to introduce some cadence and structure into the business is what's key. I do want to just transition out of the rapid fire section of the interview. I like to end each interview with a series of questions where I'm just looking for an answer straight from the gut. And the first question is this, Andy, who do you learn from? I learn from everyone we meet within this industry, but then I go outside of of the industry, I, I, I think there is a there is a temptation within our industry to to surround ourselves and say that property management unique is unique in what it does. But I, I pretty much guarantee that if you went to a, a Xerox convention, those guys will be around the bar saying, you know, how unique their business is. I think all businesses are the same. What I try to do is get outside of our industry, aside from the education. So some networking events. Uh, I, I have a mentor, I have a coach uh, on the, the training side. I, I listen to him and uh, bounce ideas uh, off of him. So it's probably not the, the clarity you're looking for or an answer, uh, but if I had to hone it down, it's just not uh, not people within this industry. <laughs> I love that, man. That is such a good answer, and I so feel you on that. I just got back from a insurance conference for independent insurance agents in Cleveland put on by a guy named Ryan Hanley who I've had on the podcast. And my life has nothing to do with insurance and it's not particularly interesting to me. But what is interesting is that that's an event where it's the same idea of what we're trying to do at PM Grow, taking high level, best in class thinking and applying it to a specific niche and a specific vertical Independent insurance agencies happen to have similar dynamics in terms of property management, in terms of at least like the selling component. They're small businesses, average transaction value, uh, sales complexity, et cetera. So I had plenty to learn and I got a ton out of it. I've been to real estate conferences before. So while it's great to go up market and to just like look at entrepreneurship generally, it's also worthwhile to look at the specifics of other adjacent verticals, whether that's mortgage, real estate, or whatever it may be. And Andy, I got to tell you, there's nothing sadder and more disappointing to me than to meet somebody in the property management space that is towards the top of the food chain. They've reached a certain level of accomplishment in this industry, and they're celebrating because they think that being at the top of the food chain in this industry is somehow like some kind of a, a life achievement award. It's worthwhile. It's it's commendable. But if you get to the top of the valley that you're climbing and you don't realize that there's another peak ahead of you and you just want to sit on that plateau and celebrate, I think it's it's small-minded. So I'm definitely with you. I appreciate you highlighting that fact. So that's, that's a satisfying answer for me. The follow-up question is, 
How does having a 14-year background in law enforcement help you as a property manager? Have you gotten any benefit from that? Yeah, absolutely I have. The one thing the police taught me on a, on a small level, I guess, is that not everything is an emergency. And it, it gave me some perspective in terms of uh, life and death. In property management, whether it be a tenant who has an issue, whether it be an owner who has a concern or a guest showing up to a vacation rental and the, the pool isn't as clean as they want it to be. To them, it is an emergency. Whereas I have some perspective about what an emergency is. So I'm not saying I'm unflappable, but I don't take everything they say to heart. I don't take it personally. And then the second one is the sales aspect of it. I was a detective for quite a number of years. And most of what you, you're doing when you're a detective is interviewing people. I equate interviewing to sales. You have to be quiet. You have to ask the right questions. Uh, there are interview techniques that are equally applicable to a criminal investigation as they are to a, a sales presentation. And so asking questions, uh, discovering the truth, reaching down into the person to see what their pain is. And you can only do that if you can learn how to ask the searching questions. Now, that sounds like a helpful frame of reference. I'm the one that's going to be the asking the questions here, Mr. Prospect. <laughs> I love I love that. Yeah, that sounds entirely useful. I'm sure there's a bunch of other stuff we didn't even get to cover in that answer. Third question for you. If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about our industry, what would it be? Personally, it would be a, a distinction between real estate agents and, and property managers. In our area, uh, we have a population of just over 700,000, uh, and there are 7,500 realtors. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's ridiculous. It's like something one in, one in 84. When you, when you calculate volume sales, it works out to be gross commissions. Like twenty three thousand per agent. It takes from what we do. It, it takes from what we do in terms of the professionalism. Anyone can lease a property. Any agent can lease a property, and then that gives property management. Uh, if they're not doing it particularly well, it gives our industry such a bad name. And I think if there were, if if there was a separation, whether it be a, a separate license in Florida or or nationally for property management, I think it would do wonders for our for our industry. I love that answer. I don't think you're going to get any pushback from anybody listening to the show right now. That's great. And and certainly we all just kind of gutturally intuit knowing that a specialist, somebody that actually has a, a real focus as opposed to just on an opportunistic basis, grabbing some low hanging dollars, we can all just kind of intuit what the results are going to come from that. What's one piece of advice you wish you could have given yourself when you first started in the business? I think uh, treated as a business is what I could have looked back with some regret. I was, my 30s were just lost in terms of head in the trenches, just trying to grind it out. And I wasn't looking at it from the, from a, a strategic perspective. So uh, treat it as a business uh, from day one. The second thing I think we've, uh, we've commented on is over communicate what you do. We went for so long in terms of thinking we were delivering a good job but the owner's perception of that good job, the two just weren't aligned. So working hard now to, uh, to over-communicate success. Love it. Final question of the day. You knew this one was coming. Andy, in your opinion, are entrepreneurs born or bred? If you have to fall on one side, I would say born. I think it's a risk factor element. And that's what entrepreneurs have is a built in, whether it be attraction or they're prepared to risk things. Whereas without that risk tolerance, I don't think people would take the first step towards uh, being an entrepreneur. For me, what resonates on this side of the answer is also the pain tolerance, right? Just like the willingness to embrace ongoing suffering for an indefinite unknown period of time. That's a hard thing to teach in a classroom. Well, Andy, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. If folks would like to get in touch or to learn a little bit more about your business, where's the best place for them to go? Uh, the best place is our website, which is uh, choosegulfcoast.com. 
Uh, it's a standard website for property management. We've got uh, owner articles on there and uh, a learning center. And uh, you might be able to pick up some uh, some tips about how we do business uh, on that website. Yeah, guys, I actually recommend going to his website. I'm on it right now. Andy, this is a really baller website, like the conversion flow. The um, I'm loving the video on the home screen. That's wh- that, that alone is worth checking out. Choose Gulf Coast. Dot com. Andy, thanks again for coming on the show. Let's stay in touch. Yeah, we'll do, Jordan. Thanks a lot for having me. My pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Please subscribe and leave us a review. Your feedback makes this a better show, and the more reviews we get, the better our guests become. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget that you can find us online in the Profitable Property Management Facebook group, where we mastermind with the best in the industry.